We invite you today to take your Bible and join me by turning to Luke chapter 4. Our passage today is Luke 4, verses 31 to 44. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. With God's help, let's turn our hearts now together to hear his word. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, it brings us to this passage where... Jesus is ministering in Capernaum. This is where Christ was first received in his public ministry in Capernaum in Galilee. Jesus, we know, went on a preaching tour there. He went throughout their synagogues. He went in the surrounding country being glorified by all. So this was an area where The good news of the gospel gained a hearing in the hearts of men. To the praise of God's glorious grace, people responded to what Jesus was preaching about. And the text that we are looking at today, the passage that we have under consideration before us, shows us why that was. It gives us some of the reasons why the needy were drawn to Christ, why sinners put their trust in him and why the, the sick and the poor and the lame and the, uh, the oppressed all found him to be their treasure, the fountain 
of all their delight. It all starts with what it says in verse 32, that as they listened to Jesus teaching them on the the Sabbath, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. His word possessed authority. That's the big idea of this text. If there's one thing you want to walk away remembering today about this passage is that the word of Jesus Christ possesses authority. Now, the question that naturally arises from a statement like that is what kind of authority? Authority over what? What kind of authority does the word of Jesus Christ possess? And that's what Luke really labors to address and to illustrate for us in the verses that follow. He does that by way of three miraculous episodes. There are three scenes, three demonstrations of Christ's authority. And then in each case, we have a response on the part of the people. Pretty straightforward structure. Three demonstrations of Christ's power, three responses on the part of those who Jesus ministers to. And those responses are instructive in their own right as well. The first you find in verse 33, Jesus is teaching in the local synagogue and they're in the middle of a a church service, uh, so to speak. Somewhere in the middle of, of that service in the middle of all of the, the interested listeners, like yourselves, uh, there is a man who suddenly exclaims, Ha! And there is a, there's a spirit of uh, derision and scorn behind, behind that, that word. And there is, as we come to discover, this man who is possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. He says to Jesus, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Literally, it's what to us and to you. In other words, words, what do we have in common? Why are you meddling with us? What are you doing here uh, interfering with us? Now, brothers and sisters, the demon knows perfectly well what Jesus is doing. Uh, The demon knows why Jesus is is there why Christ has gotten himself involved. And you can see that in what follows in the demon's words. He says, have you come to destroy us? So the demon knows exactly what's going on. The, the, the demon knows what Christ is up to and probably he is, he's trying to get ahead of things here. He's trying to assert himself over the authority of Jesus Christ, but what I want you to notice here is that the demon too recognizes the authority of Jesus. Unclean spirits, demonic powers recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. And that becomes self-evident when when he makes that question, have you come to destroy us? We might wonder to ourselves, why does he use the, the, the plural there? Why does he say, have you come to destroy us? And it may be that the demon thinks, well, if you've come to destroy me, then you're going to have to destroy the man who, who I inhabit, who I possess. 
More likely, he has in mind just the forces of evil, more generally speaking. Have you come to destroy demonic powers? Have you come to destroy all of those who are in league with me? And the answer being, as we see unequivocally, gloriously, yes, I have come to destroy powers such as these. Praise be to God. Well, you can see why the demon is so terrified. It's right there in the text. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon knows who Christ is. He not only calls Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, but he goes beyond that. He says that he is the Holy One of God. He recognizes that Christ is the anointed one, Uh, He is the one who has been sent by the Father. Uh, Jesus is the one who is now standing against him in all of his power and might. So the demon recognizes, just like the people do, the authority of Christ's word. Now, brothers and sisters, there's there's a warning here for us. As we look at what we see the demon confess, about Jesus Christ, what we see him acknowledge about who Jesus is and what he's capable of. Just notice, first of all, that the demon's confession is absolutely true. He says that Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Holy One of God. And the demon is exactly right there. That is what you would call gospel truth. That is absolutely right. Later, we're going to see in in, in our passage uh, more demons crying out, you are the son of God. Jesus says they knew that he was the Messiah. So just mark this in your mind, that while the demon's theology is entirely orthodox in every way, it's not in any way an expression of faith. It's not in any way an expression of trust in Jesus Christ. This spirit is able to articulate clearly and accurately who Jesus is. He knows something of his person. He knows of his origin. He knows his divine nature. He knows his purpose. He knows of his power. The demon actually has a better understanding of who Jesus was than the ones that Jesus preached to in the city of Nazareth in Christ's hometown, if you were with us last week. You remember that there when Jesus preaches, the people simply reject him. In fact, they try to kill him. The demon, on the other hand, his doctrine is absolutely sound, but it's not accompanied by faith. It's not accompanied by any kind of trust in the Lord. James talks about this very thing. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well, Even the demons believe, and they shudder. They shudder at the presence of Jesus Christ. And when James writes that, he's writing to people like us. He's writing to to churchgoers. He's writing to people who uh, have made a profession of faith, if you will. People who would say, I believe in Jesus of Nazareth. I know who he is. I know that he is the Holy One of God, come from above, sent by the Father. 
Well, James says that all that does is qualify you to be a demon. Demons do much more than many churchgoers do. They shudder. There's a fear there as I think about Jesus Christ. So church, there is a kind of belief that does not save. There is a kind of orthodoxy that can accompany your life that will not save you on the last day. The question we must ask ourselves is, do we have a living and abiding trust of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have we abandoned our sin? Have we abandoned our love of self? Have we seen the awful price that Christ came to pay in our stead and placed all of our hope in him? All of our trust in him. Have we come to him with the empty hands of faith, trusting in the merit of Jesus Christ that it might be counted to us as righteousness? I'll say it another way. Right theology cannot save you. Sound doctrine will not save you. The fact that you don't deny the truth about Jesus Christ doesn't make you a Christian. Have you trusted in him? Have you received the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? If you look at verse 35, Jesus rebukes the spirit and he says, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Notice that the demon throws him down. He comes out violently, but he's, but he's unable to do the man any harm. You have a picture here of total deliverance. Total deliverance from captivity and oppression. Now he's free from those demonic powers he was subject to. Just imagine uh, the transformation that has occurred in just the blink of an eye in this man's life. He has gone from living a life dominated by demonic power, by the powers of spiritual darkness. He is subject to that unclean spirit's dominion. He is tormented in body and mind. It's described as the spirit of an unclean demon. That calls to mind all of, all of the filth, all of the sin, all of the impurity and wickedness of, of the spiritual forces of darkness. And now what do we find? He's loosed entirely from that spirit's influence and power. He's in his right mind. He's delivered. He's healed. He's loosed. He's set free. He's unharmed. It is a living picture of Isaiah chapter 61, that ministry. You remember Christ said that he had come to bring, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. A wonderful thing here is that Contra what we see in some so-called so healing ministries today is it's not a process, it's instantaneous. It happens immediately, just at the word, the authority of Jesus Christ. And he is set free. It's not hard for Christ to do. So to return to our question, what kind of authority? What kind of authority does Jesus possess? Christ has authority over the spiritual world. 
Christ has authority over all creation, things in heaven and on earth and, on, and under the earth. Here it's emphasized that Christ rules over all spiritual powers. Spiritual powers of darkness. That's very good news for those who are bound in the chains of sin. You don't have to be possessed by a demonic spirit for that to be good news for you. If you are held captive under the domain of darkness, which you are, if Jesus Christ is not the Lord of your life, this is good news that Christ rules over spiritual powers. One author talks about how we don't just see Jesus firing scripture verses at the devil. We see him quoting scripture in Jesus' temptation, but he also says this, he raids his outposts. He routes his demonic legions and sets free their captives. I said that there's a response in each of these episodes that deserves our examination also. The deliverance of this man isn't the end of the account. Look at verse 36. They were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. This isn't something you, you see on just any old Sabbath. They're amazed. Here is a man who commands the spiritual world. And it responds. Just notice that they, they marvel at the power of his word. What is this word? Jesus isn't a magician. Jesus is not a showman. There are no incantations here. There are no spells. The focus is on his teaching. The focus is on what he commands. It's not just an act that's in view. The crowd doesn't say, well, look at that, that feat. Isn't that neat? They grasp the fact that behind that miracle stood the power of Christ's word the authority with which he spoke. That's where the, the, the power of Christ rests in his word. That's what uh, Luther rejoiced in when uh, he wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That, that, that line we sang uh, this, morning, or this, this afternoon, one little word shall fell him. The authority of Jesus Christ's word is where the hope of Christians is found. And you, and you see the, 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 the note of awe that just washes over the people. You see how, how comforting and reassuring and encouraging it is to see him vanquish the powers of spiritual darkness right before they, their eyes. They were all amazed. We're so accustomed to reading these, these stories that they're just kind of old hat. We're, we're, we're familiar with them. We've read them a thousand times. Beloved, allow yourself to be freshly astonished at the power of Jesus Christ today. At the power of the Son of God who came to set at liberty the oppressed. That includes you and me. He has set us free with his almighty power this is the hope of knowing Jesus Christ, that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ so wonderfully dwells in his people, in his almighty power, and that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Praise God. That this episode is said at the, at the very beginning of Luke's 
uh, account of Jesus's ministry isn't happenstance, I don't believe. We've seen that uh, Luke is a very careful, uh, deliberate writer when he sets together his, his, his account. And this is a strategic move on his part. It's, it's a strategic move in much the same way that we see John uh, place uh, Jesus turning the water into wine as the first gospel in his as the first miracle in, in his gospel account. There's a wedding there in that, in that picture and there's, there's, there's a feast and there's good wine that is poured out liberally to, to all who are in attendance. It's a type. It's a type of something that's going to happen later on a much bigger scale. It's pointing beyond that miracle in Canaan to a day when we will all come and sup together at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Well, you have the same thing happening here just looking at things from another angle, throwing light on another theme of Christ's person and work. Christ came to vanquish his foes, not just for this man, but for, but, but for all who believe on him, to deliver spiritually all that trust in him. Friends, here is a hard but necessary truth for us to understand. This is from 1 John chapter 3. And verse 8, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John says there, what we see depicted in graphic visual terms in our text today If you have not been born of God, if you have not been born again, born from above, if Christ hasn't set you free from the works of sin and darkness so that your your life is uh, still characterized by sin, you make a practice of sinning, as the scripture says, you are of the devil. You belong to him. That does not mean that every unbeliever walking the face of the earth is possessed by a demonic spirit in the way that we see this man here, but in terms of your association, in terms of who your spiritual father is, in terms of influence and control, the effect is the same. You remain bound in sin. The Bible says your will is to do your father's desires. Now here's good news. Now I'll continue on with what John says. Let me read again, though, what what he said. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now listen to this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so if you are trapped in your sin, if you are trapped in the passions of the flesh, if you remain what the scriptures describe as one of the sons of disobedience, someone who is still by nature a child of wrath, that's something we all are in our fallen condition, you have nowhere else to run except to the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason the Son of God came, the reason he appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. He is the answer to your spiritual predicament. He is the answer to your condition. He is your only refuge. 
Christ came to trample his enemies underfoot to set the captive free. We see that fulfilled ultimately in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. But already here, we have a harbinger of that. We have a preview. All right, already we are invited to marvel at the one who commands the unclean spirits and they come out. They come out. Now, friends, lest we miss the obvious, I want to call your attention today to the fact that the scriptures speak directly to the reality of the spiritual world, to the presence of spiritual forces of darkness that oppose Christ, that oppose his purposes in the world, that oppose his people. Peter said this, he said, your, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, Simon Peter is a man who knew that experientially. He understood what that was like. Jesus told him on one occasion, you remember, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. So there is a real spiritual battle raging right now involving real spiritual forces of darkness. Now, we have to say that there are some circles that attribute everything to to, to demonic power, to spiritual forces of darkness. Every sin, uh, every stronghold in a believer's life, every point of resistance, everything that doesn't go the way that you want it to in life is attributed to demonic power. Satan gets the blame for everything. The devil made me do it. That is not the, the full-orbed uh, biblical uh, understanding of the battle that we are in. Uh, James also says this, for example, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. His own desire. So if we are going to fight the good fight of faith effectively, if we're going to defeat remaining sin in our lives as believers, we need to take into account everything that the scripture has to say. We need to take into account our own depravity, our own passions of the flesh. Well, then there's another error that is prevalent in other Christian circles where believers live functionally denying the presence of spiritual forces of evil. And and this, I I think, is particularly the case where we live. It's particularly the case in the Western world today. Everything has a natural explanation. Everything has a natural or a physiological cause. We're more concerned with viruses than we are with demons. Demons. Or all of our problems can be explained in terms of a mental illness. I want to be very clear to make uh, make it explicit that this is not to say that there isn't such thing as mental illness or that you shouldn't seek out a medical doctor's advice. But when we speak in these categories alone, we leave out a major, major theme, a major, major category that the scriptures do not leave out, which is the reality of the spiritual forces of wickedness. Many of the the cultures around the world that we would think of 
as primitive actually have a better grasp on these things uh, than we do uh, in our own culture. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That does not mean that a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can be possessed by a demon, but they can be oppressed. They can be harassed in the way that Job was harassed. They can be attacked like Peter was. Satan goes about like a roaring lion, but we have this assurance that if we resist him, which is to say, if we are sober-minded, if we are watchful, if we put on the full armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day, if we act in faith, if we recognize that the only strength that we have is the strength that we find in knowing the Lord and having done all to stand firm, he will flee. That one who goes about like a roaring lion will flee like a dog with its tail between its legs. We have that comfort, that assurance Are you resisting the devil? Now, from there we go to the house of Simon Peter in verse 38. Here we find Simon's mother-in-law. You might not know that uh, Peter was married. He was. The Bible is very clear about that, which just as an aside is uh, one biblical argument that flies in the face of the, the Roman Catholic doctrine of celibacy That's another subject for another day. But notice here the setting. We move from a a very public arena to a private home. Now, why do I bring that up? Christ will display great works of power in the synagogue and the public square, but he will also come into your home with the same mighty power. There is an authenticating witness that his miracles have in the public arena. But Jesus doesn't just exhibit his power when there are crowds there to watch. He draws near to the needy in intimate, uh, private settings. In this case, you have Simon's mother-in-law. And she's ill with a high fever. Remember, uh, Luke is a doctor. He's a, he's a physician. He knows about these kinds of things. She's bedridden. bedridden. What does Jesus do? He comes and he stands over her. And he rebukes the fever. And it left her. Now ordinarily, touching a sick person makes the healthy person sick. But not so with Christ. The healer touches the sick, and instead of becoming defiled, the defiled becomes healed. Isn't that wonderful? And look at her response, verse 39. Immediately she rose and began to serve them. With just a word, she is healed, and just as quickly she begins to serve the Lord and to serve his followers. Do you think there's a lesson there for us? Do you you think that there's perhaps something paradigmatic there in that episode for us as we think about what the Lord Jesus has done in our own lives and how we might ought to respond to his gracious work within us? When you are sick, usually the last thing you're thinking about is serving others. That's just 
the way things are. It, it, it comes with the territor- territory. It's part of your condition, uh, you might say. But now Christ has done a work. And Simon's mother-in-law goes from thinking about herself, thinking about her own needs, her own woes, to thinking about others. Uh, gratitude and service and hospitality just flow out as she responds to what Christ has done in her life. She goes from being ministered to, to ministering to others. This is one of the things you find wherever the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is poured out on a life. Can you see something of that in your own life? You see some of that pattern in your life, brothers and sisters? Is the kindness and grace of God uh, given rise in your life to to acts of service uh, to the Lord and to the Lord's people and and to others around you? 1 Peter 4 and verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. And then he gives a purpose statement behind that. He says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why do we serve? Not to check off a box. Not to look good in front of others. But in order that in everything... God might be glorified in Jesus Christ. Well, at this point, this is all on one day. This point in the story, uh, it's getting late. Uh, The sun is setting, but look at what happens. The day is not over for Christ. Verse 40, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. Probably a lot of this is because they were waiting for the day to be over um, and in their minds t- uh, to carry the sick and the lame while it was still light on the Sabbath day would be a violation of the Sabbath, uh, let alone the fact that in many of their minds healing on the Sabbath day uh, would have been considered a violation. That's something uh, we will take up later in, in the course of, of this this study, but you have this, this picture of just mobs of people being brought to Christ. The sick and the lame, the blind, the deaf, uh, lepers are all coming to him. Those who are possessed by demons, people are crowding into Simon's house, probably a very, very small house. Almost certainly there's uh, many, many people on the outside and they're pushing around and they're trying to look over people and see what's going on and when am I going to get my turn with, with my beloved? What does Jesus do? He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Every one of them. What can we learn from this? Three things briefly. First, the Lord Jesus is approachable. He is accessible to his people. Jesus is not like those celebrities who wear dark sunglasses and go around with bodyguards around them and don't let anyone get close to him. He is accessible. You can get close to Jesus day or night 
you can come to him. Number two, he's caring. Jesus is not repulsed by their sickness. He's not put off by disease. He took time to minister to each one as was appropriate for their condition. He did not overlook anyone that day. And we sang earlier again, he is full of pity, love, power. That's number three, power. He healed them, every single one of them. He did the same thing. He ministered in the same intimate, caring, a powerful way to uh, each one of those that was possessed by a demon that day. He again silences their oppressors. He wouldn't allow them to speak. Whatever their confession was, you remember the first demon. Here they say, you are the son of God. But the testimony of demons is not how the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be promulgated throughout the world. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. They don't have any sincere interest in making Jesus Christ known to men. And so while the bare words of their confession may have been true, they were born out of hatred. They were born out of malice, not, a, uh, not at all a desire to see him glorified. And so Jesus silences them. He rebukes the demons and he sets the captives free. Now, beloved, there's one thing that uh, Matthew speaks of in his account of this day that I want to call your attention to because it is so illuminating, it is so instructive, we just, we just can't pass it over. Immediately after his account of Jesus' day of ministry here in Capernaum, Matthew makes this remark. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew says this. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's Matthew eight seventeen. if you're taking notes. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That comes right out of Isaiah 53, the fourth of what we, we sometimes refer to as the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And when you look at the verse that Matthew quotes from, from Matthew chapter, or from Isaiah 53, and you look at uh, that chapter in its entirety, when you look at the way that the, the New Testament authors consistently tie that chapter to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it becomes very clear that the means by which Christ bears our infirmities and our illnesses and our sorrows is through his propitiatory death in our place. Matthew makes it very clear that when Jesus healed all of those people, he was fulfilling what was prophesied of the Messiah, something that would be accomplished through sufferings and death. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. 
Now, some would look at that and say, well, you see, it's always God's will to heal. Physical healing is, is provided for in the atonement being the claim. That is not the witness of the scriptures. The same God who healed these individuals on this day is the God who told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And the thorn in the flesh remained in his side. When Matthew points back to these healings, remember that he is writing uh, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, after the cross, when he looks at those healings and then he draws that connection to the cross, he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He is telling us that those miracles aren't just isolated displays of power, that they are a preview of the benefits the cross supplies. When Jesus brought healing and deliverance to this crowd, they got a sampling of what would one day come as a result of Christ's atoning death. But you know, even though they were healed, they still all died after the ultimate healing comes in the resurrection. In the resurrection. And so the Lord would have us look beyond the, the healings that are recorded in the scriptures to what they testify to, to what they point toward. The cross is our only hope of healing, healing of every kind. Whether we're talking about uh, conditions that are the, the, the direct result of particular sin uh, that we have committed and are thereby suffering various consequences in our lives or uh, the conditions that we face just as a result of living in a broken and a sin-sick world, the answer is the same and it is to look to the cross of Jesus Christ to put all of our hope in him. Look to the cross. Look to the one who bore our sins, and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Confess by his wounds we have been healed. Draw near to Jesus. That's the third response we see here in this passage. We have seen the crowd astonished. We've seen them watching on uh, in amazement. We have seen Simon's mother-in-law jump up and want to serve. And then we see people draw near. Verse 42, it says, When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Daybreak has now come. Uh, Crowds are still pressing in on him. They still have an agenda for Jesus, but Christ is under this divine must. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. If Jesus was to stay in Capernaum, it would have run counter to the mission that he had been given to go throughout the land, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. 
That was his priority. This is the first time that we have seen uh, this phrase, the kingdom of God. It's an important one. It's one that we're going to see a lot uh, in the time to come. We can just barely scratch the surface here, but you see it demonstrated in each of the the episodes that we have looked at today. Uh, God's kingly rule is exercised through the lordship of Jesus Christ over every earthly subject. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a kingdom of light. It's a kingdom where uh, its citizens no longer live in slavery and bondage in chains. They, They live in happy submission, happy submission to a kind, a gracious, a generous king. The kingdom of God is something that is inaugurated at Christ's coming. You can can see it here. Jesus comes into the world and there's a clash. There is a clash of kingdoms. The devil's authority and the authority of Jesus Christ come into into conflict and the, 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 the authority of Jesus Christ triumphs over the power of darkness. Jesus told his disciples, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. It's been inaugurated in the coming of Christ Jesus, and then it's a kingdom that will be consummated at the end of the age. Jesus talks about a time when the master of the house will at last rise, And he will shut the door of the house and there will be those on the outside who are left knocking. And they will say, Lord, open to us. But he will say, I tell you, I do do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west And from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And so at the present hour, there is this already not yet dynamic uh, to the kingdom of God. It was for this purpose, Christ says, he was sent to preach, to draw in those that were his. So let us venture on him, venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you this day. God, we lift up our our souls to the great physician. God, we think today especially of the the malady of, of, of the inner man, of the great need that we have born under Adam the fact that we stand in great need of your attendance and care, your healing power. God, we confess that apart from your your grace and your healing touch, we are sin sick. God, we do not deserve your kindness. We do not deserve to be near to you but you are a gracious God. God, thank you for your son. Thank you that he is the great physician. Lord, we thank you that 
as citizens of his kingdom, we look forward to a day when there will be no more crying or sickness or pain or sorrow, for the former things will pass away. Now until then, Lord, we pray that all of our trust would be in you, that our hearts would be ever stayed upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.